The following is a listener-supported ministry from the Grace Evangelical Society. What is annihilationism? How can I be sure that I am eternally saved? Will a denial of Christ forfeit my chance for eternal salvation? Oh, we're so glad that you've tuned in today. Glad to have you with us here on Grace in Focus. This is the podcast and radio broadcast ministry of the Grace Evangelical Society. We are located in North Texas. We come to you each day, Monday through Friday. Our website is faithalone.org. You can find out a lot about us there and read our articles. And we also make videos three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can find them on YouTube, Grace Evangelical Society. Now with today's discussion about these big theological words, here are Bob Wilkin and Steve Elkins. Okay, so today we'll try to hit a couple of different words. The first one on the doctrine of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation is annihilationism. What in the world is annihilationism? Well, in contrast to eternal conscious torment, which is a popular phrase out there, that when a person goes to hell, right. they're going to have eternal conscious experience of that. Annihilationism would say, in their opinion, God wouldn't be that kind of a God, tormenting or punishing someone forever. So they opt for a view that says they'll just be annihilated. They'll stop existing. It's also called conditional immortality. Mm-hmm. And the idea is at the great white throne judgment, All these people will be thrown into the lake of fire, and as soon as they hit the lake of fire, they just cease to exist. They might interpret that to say, well, the smoke of their torment may go up forever, but they're gone. And there are many, I think we'd call them conservative theologians who believe in annihilationism. John Stott, for example. Right. A lordship guy. And there are a lot of people, and I think it's gaining some traction Because in our postmodern world, people have a hard time accepting what the scriptures say that God is going to do in the future. And it's not so much that this is what God picked for these people. It's what they pick for themselves because Sheol or Hades was not prepared for people. It was prepared for fallen angels. Mm -hmm. And the lake of fire, same way. Lake of fire is designed for fallen angels. Humans never needed to be a part of that. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, there wouldn't have been a single human ever who would have ended up in the lake of fire. Mm. You know, we would disagree with C.S. Lewis on some points, but he makes some great points otherwise. And my favorite C.S. Lewis book is The Great Divorce. And his tour guide in heaven is who he considered his mentor, a guy named George MacDonald, who back in the late 1800s was probably more famous than Lewis Carroll, his good friend. MacDonald was a good author, and C.S. Lewis said he never wrote a book that he didn't quote from MacDonald. Well, in, in this book, it's a fictional bus ride from hell to heaven. <laughs> and why all these guys on the bus ride who had come out of hell, once they see what heaven's like, etc., based on their screwy reasonings, They want to get on the first bus back to hell, so many of them. Wow. It's crazy. But at the end of the book, MacDonald, who is C.S. Lewis' tour guide in heaven, and by the way, C.S. Lewis says, what are you doing here? I thought you were a universalist. Because MacDonald had a weird view on hell that it was sort of like a purgatory. They wouldn't stay there. Eventually, they would all be redeemed, if you will, and taken to heaven. So it becomes universalism. And so the McDonald character says, well, I was. I was a universalist, but I was wrong. (laughs) Okay, So that shows a little bit of Lewis' take on grace. But one of the things that McDonald says to Lewis is, in the end, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done, 
and those to whom God will finally say, thy will be done. <laughs> now, who would ever choose to go to hell, though? Right. But, you know, who would ever choose to be an alcoholic? Or who would ever choose to bring on himself through his sin of choice the bad stuff that goes with it, yet they still do? Yeah, exactly. And for almost everybody, they're not intentionally choosing eternal torment in the lake of fire. But by rejecting Christ, that's what they're, in effect, doing, right? That's right. And even though they might know the consequences, the devil is no doubt blinded them or uh, deceived them in some way to think, well, it's not really going to be that bad or it's not really going to happen, just like he does in deceiving Eve, you know. Oh, right. Will you surely die? And by the way, it's interesting you gave the thy will be done. It's interesting because the part about God's will be done that can be taken two ways. Mm. One way would be the Lordship salvation way and saying, unless I yield to the will of God in my life, I'm not going to get into the kingdom. But the other way to take it is John six thirty nine and 40, that the yeah. will of the Father right. is that all who believe in his Son have everlasting life. Absolutely. And so in that sense, I would say, thy will be done in the sense that you've said whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has everlasting life. Yeah, in my book, Keys to Kingdom Greatness, a shameless plug here. Yes, very good, uh, <laughs> which we carry, by the way. On uh, chapter 7 about the Lordship Salvationist, to whom Jesus says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, right. but he who does the will of the Father. We do an, a deep dive on that phrase, the will of the Father, and show that it's actually a technical phrase in the New Testament, used how it's used to refer to believing in the Son for everlasting life, and John 6 is the granddaddy passage for it. You know, I've heard you talk about this before, and you argue all references to the will of the Father in the New Testament. I think it's something like 8 to 10 times in Matthew, plus it occurs in John and other places. All of them refer to believing in Jesus. That's right, except for the two in the Lord's Prayer and the two in His prayer in Gethsemane. Okay. Otherwise, they're in the presence of non-believers, and it always refers without exception to believing in the Son for everlasting life. And the crazy thing is, outside of John, the other places are in Matthew. And as you know, Matthew doesn't use John-type terminology, yeah. believe Jesus for everlasting life. But in these passages where it's used, he does. Wow, that's great. It's coming. It'll be here before you know it. What am I talking about? The Grace Evangelical Society's National Conference 2024. It will take place May the 20th through the 23rd at Camp Copus, an absolutely beautiful campground in North Texas, right on the lake with lots of recreation, great food, a great place to stay, wonderful fellowship, and wonderful free grace Bible teaching. It is time to start planning and getting registered for the National Conference 2024, May the 20th through the 23rd. Hope to see you there. Okay, let's try another word. Arminianism. What? Now, we're not talking Armenianism. That right. would be people from the country of Armenia, right. which is near Russia. But right. what is Arminianism? Well, named after Jacobus Arminius. Yes. When we think of it, we just usually think of it simply, it's much more detailed than this, but simply as the person who believes you can lose your salvation. Right. Or when you believe Jesus for eternal life, you might be saved at that moment, but you're not eternally saved. You don't have eternal life. You maybe have like probationary life, though they don't call it that. Arminius, I think he was in the 17th century, like the 1600s, right? Right. And he was following Calvin, but he considered himself a Calvinist, and he was modifying Calvinism. In right. other words, he wasn't trying to say, I'm creating something that's anti-Calvinism. He was trying to 
clarify Calvinism and make it to where people could respond to God, because Calvinists were very fatalistic. Probably the most famous are John and Charles Wesley. Yeah, and a lot of our songs are written by Charles Wesley, Right. right? And even believed in assurance of salvation, but listen to the contradiction. They didn't believe in eternal security. Isn't that crazy? Well, except it's funny. I've read some things about John Wesley talking to these missionaries when he was on the boat back to England, right after he'd been ministering to the Native Americans here in Mm -hmm. the United States. And I've read some things that make me think that at that time, Mm -hmm. he knew he was secure forever. I would be surprised if both of them didn't believe the gospel at some point, even if for a a moment or two. So we'd expect to see him in the kingdom, even though they later said, no, eternal security is not true. Now, we got another one, and this relates to it, and that is assurance of salvation. Mm. So when we talk about assurance of salvation, what do we mean? It just simply means being certain that you have eternal life, your eternal destiny is set, and you know it. We normally use assurance of salvation in terms of our own personal certainty that I'm saved, and I'm in good hands, my destiny's set. Now, for most people in evangelicalism, assurance is not certainty. Assurance is some degree of confidence. It's so sad, Bob, because I just got to do a paper at the GS conference and looked at all of these books by lordship writers, Calvinist writers, and others. One of them was an openness, Gregory Boyd. Oh, right. And he said, certainty is ridiculous. We can't be certain of anything. Of course, that's a postmodern view right. that we can't be certain of anything. It's self-defeating on its face. Are you certain of that statement? <laughs> you know, that's self-defeating. But others, some of the famous theologians of our day would say, we can't be certain of the really big, important things in life. Jesus' death and resurrection. Can we be certain of that? We have to take it in faith. And faith for them is not certainty in the biblical sense but maybe a sense of trust or a degree of confidence, but we can't be certain of it. You're making a good point. It's not just assurance of everlasting life that is not certainty, but assurance of Jesus' death and resurrection is not certainty. Assurance of the existence of God is not certainty. I've heard people graduated from our alma mater Mm -hmm. say that we're not sure that God exists. They say, well, it's a seven on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10. It's a seven. And when they talk about how sure they are of their own salvation, they say, oh, I'm about a four. And that's where post-modernity is. So, yeah, assurance of salvation is actually certainty, but that's not the way most people use the word. If you're talking to someone and they say, yes, they have assurance, say, and what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Ask them, because they may say something like, I think it's highly likely I'm going to make it. Yeah. All right, let's try another one. What does denying Christ mean? That expression comes up a number of times. Peter denied Christ, and Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we deny him, he will deny us. What is denying Christ? Well, there's some passages, probably the foundational passages we think of on it come from Jesus' lips in the Gospels, where he says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. Matthew 10.33 and verse 32, he who confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father. Exactly. Carefully looked at, those are clear rewards passages. Amen. Paul's really interpreting it, in my mind, in 2 Timothy 2, when he says, if we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. 
If we deny him, he will deny us, i.e. getting to reign with him. That's a commentary on Matthew 10, 33. Exactly, using the same words that Jesus used, but not contradicting eternal security because the very next verse he says, but if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot contradict himself. Yes. It's also used in Revelation as well, chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. I forget which church he's writing to, but he talks about denying me or not, dealing with rewards, most certainly. Well, very good. So denying Christ would be a person who ceased to confess him openly. Yeah. One of the big ways we would do that is withdrawing from the worshiping community. We're no longer part of church, but another way we would do it is we wouldn't tell people we're believers. Sure. We wouldn't be open about our faith, but to deny Christ is something that we definitely do not want to do because if that occurs, we're not going to rule with them in the life to come. And lordship people will take it even we can deny Christ by our actions. Right, by the way we live. But the other thing they would say is if you deny him, you're not even getting into the kingdom. In fact, there's one translation says, if we disown him, he will disown us. Oh. That's the horrible translation. It's horrible because the word agaomaya that's used there cannot have that definition. The leading lexicon, it doesn't have that. Right, no, absolutely. Thanks, Steve, and thanks, y'all. And remember to keep Grace in focus. Amen. Would you be interested in some free ebooks on topics you hear on this program? Well, if you are, you need to come visit us at faithalone.org. That's faithalone.org. We would love to hear from you. Maybe you've got a question, comment, or some feedback. If you do, please don't hesitate to send us a message. Here's our email address. It's radio at faithalone.org. That's radio at faithalone.org. And when you do, very important, please let us know your radio station call letters and the city of your location. And on the next episode, more big words to talk about propitiation, protoevangelium, and total depravity. Please join us. Until then, let's keep grace in focus. The proceeding has been a listener-supported ministry from the Grace Evangelical Society.